Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning, whether you're here in person or you're online or whether later on you'll be watching a recording online. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are also thankful that you have chosen to be with us. We want to apologize because of the time in which we live or are not able to be as hospitable as we normally would and gather together and get opportunities to meet you and to see you face to face. But the pandemic has kind of put some of the damper on some of that activity. But we want you to know that you are a welcome guest and that we're thankful that you are here with us. As was mentioned already, during this time of the season, we find ourselves singing a, a number of in, incredible songs that remind us of the season in which we are now living. For instance, there's this Andy Williams song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Almost all of us know the tune to it, where it says it's the most wonderful time of the year, where kids, you know, they are jingle belling, and everyone is telling, be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And then it goes on with this course, and it describes the various activities that go on that are associated with the Christmas uh, season with a primary emphasis on that of getting together with one another, whether it's family or with friends. Obviously, because of this pandemic, some of that has been uh, tamped down or, or dampened. But nevertheless, there is this emphasis of being together, and we try to find ways in which we can be together with one another and enjoy each other's uh, company. Now, I recognize that for some, it may be a, a season of the year that is not so wonderful, that they're reminded of loved ones past and now uh, uh, gone. But nevertheless, there's this emphasis of the song that centers in on the wonderful things that have occurred in the past and also in the presence of our lives. So it's the most wonderful time of the year. And then, of course, there's this other song that we sing, which is the 12 days of Christmas. There it says, you know, four calling birds, three friends, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. And we, and we sing that song, and it's a song that actually it begins right after the day of Thanksgiving and continues on through Christmas, today's past, and when some religious circles, goes all the way to January the 6th. And the emphasis of that song there is that of giving uh, gifts. And there's a variety of gifts that this song lays out before us. And since this is the season of giving, that song seems to play a huge role. Now, to my wife, if you were to ask her what she thought about this song, The 12 Days of Christmas, she would say, that's an annoying song. But to little children, they love to sing this song, and it may be because of how the song originated. In fact, have you ever thought about how did this song originate? Where did the song come from? Well, there are a number of theories that are postured for how this song came about. One is that it, it was uh, sang during the 18th century in France where children used it as a kind of a memory forfeit game. They were to add these songs, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and they were to start that on the 12th day and go all the way back, and they would do it in a memory, and they were to take their turn, turn in being able to identify what the gift of that day was, and if they weren't able to do so, then they had to forfeit. And what they'd have to forfeit is they'd have to forfeit a candy or maybe a kiss or some kind of thing of, of, of value. It had to be a huge value, but something of value. So it was a memory kind of game. Another theory that has been postured, which is really not all that long ago, was in the 1990s, which means it goes about not quite 30 years ago. And it's a theory that postured that it began in the 1790s in England. And it was written during the time of the uh, Protestant Reformation movement, and the Catholic Church was outlawed in those days. And as a result of that, a lot of Catholic parents were 
teaching their children some biblical truths that were connected with each one of those days or each one of those those gifts there and so it became this kind of a memory thing once again of biblical truths now if you were to read down to which which each of those represented they're pretty incredible and they're almost all biblically accurate the problem with that is that as i did some research on the 12 days of christian and this particular theory I didn't find a shred of evidence that backed it up and said that it was a valid a theory that was really locked in history in that day. And so probably the best theory is the first one, that it was a memory forfeit game. But the point is, is that the song itself reminds us of gifts, and that it is a season of gifts and the season of giving to one another which fits well into our series that I've been sharing with you on the idea of embracing our, our, our unique gifts and talents that God has given to us. And we've been looking at Romans, the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 1 and going down through verse 8. And in that section of Scripture, in verse 5 in particular, there it says that we have gifts that are different according to the grace given to us. And then Paul then begins to lay out seven gifts that have been given to the church that allows the church to grow, that inspires us in so many incredible ways. And so God places these gifts within the hearts of individuals that motivate them to do various acts of service, whether it's in prophecy or in serving or in teaching or encouragement or, or in giving or being merciful or leadership. Those are all gifts that God has given to the church to do some incredible things. But it not only motivates the individual that has this gift, it's supposed to inspire us as well. That when we see them acting on their gift, that should inspire us to act on those exact same kinds of things. And I've already mentioned to you over the past weeks that when you talk about these gifts, these gifts are things that almost all of us are expected to do. But there are individuals who have this special, almost motivational kind of gift to act out in incredible ways in serving the church or the congregation in which they uh, live. For instance, we talked about the gift of prophecy that we said was a broad proclamation of the good news with an emphasis on repentance. Well, it should inspire all of us to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And then we talked about service, which was a gift that motivates a person to look at the needs that are around them and then to serve, which should inspire us to serve as well. Then there's the gift of teaching. There are those who have placed within their hearts this passion to teach God's word or to share God's word with those who are around them and that they take opportunity to teach God's word. That should inspire us to teach as well. And then, of course, there's that of encouragement that I call the gift that spurs others on. Encouragement does inspire others on. Encouragement does build each other up. But it inspires all of us to be, take a part in encouraging and building others up. That brings us now to the fifth gift, that Paul mentions, and that is the gift of giving. There Paul says, if a person's gift is giving, he says, let him give generously. And so I've called this sermon the gift of the open heart. You might be wondering, well, how did I come to that kind of uh, a, a title? Well, as I began to read down through that section of Scripture and I began to look at each individual word and break them down and try to come with a, a definition of what each of those words meant, I discovered that when you talk about this idea of giving and when you talk about a, a giver, what I've learned is that givers motivate others to be givers as as well. And so when you have a giver in your midst, the result is, is that you are encouraged or motivated to give as as well. 
And so when you look at the gift of giving and you begin to look at those words that are there, you begin to get an idea of the importance of it because it seems to me when you look at these seven gifts that Paul mentions, that God puts a high priority on those gifts. And if God puts a high priority on those gifts, then that says to me that maybe we ought to put a high priority of those gifts as well. And if we have that gift, then we need to act upon that gift. And as we look at others who are around us where we may not be gifted in that area, we should be inspired to give ourselves. So as you look at the gift of giving and you look at the word giving itself, it comes from this Greek word metadidomi, and metadidomi is a word that actually means to impart or to give a share of. Probably the context has to do with some kind of um, monetary value or monetary gift that we give to someone who is in in need but we know that it probably goes far beyond just that idea but it is the idea of sharing what we have or imparting what we have to others which is coupled with the word generosity the word generosity comes from the word hapapalace hapapalace is a word that means simplicity it means sincerity It, it has to do with mental honesty Depending on the context in which you find the word, it can have different kinds of nuances to it, but I think the one that fits best to what we're talking about this morning is that hapapalase or generosity is not a self-seeking kind of thing, but an openness of heart that manifests itself in, in itself in generosity. And so that's why some translation says, if you have the gift of giving... If a person has that gift, then they need to give with generosity. They are to give with an abundance because you're giving of yourself or you're giving of your heart uh, to God. Well, if that's so then, and God gives gifts within the church, and one of those gifts is giving, well, that gift is given in order that it inspires others to give. Well, why is that? Because we as human beings have a tendency to be miserly. We have a tendency to be stingy, to hold on to the things that we have, to come to this belief that we have raised ourselves up by our own bootstrings because of our intelligence or our, and our, our education or maybe, maybe even our ambition. We have collected all this wealth or all these many things, and they are ours. We have earned these things, therefore they are ours, and we forget that all the things that we have really are God's, God's in the first place. Psalm 50 says that a cattle on a thousand hills are God's. That's telling us that everything on the planet belongs to God and whatever we have in terms of anything of monetary value, whether it's money itself or whether it's possessions, they are are God's. And so the givers within a congregation are those who are very selfless. They are those who open their hearts with generosity to those who are in need. And that motivates us to do the exact same thing. An example of that is found over in Acts, the fourth chapter. If you'll open your Bibles to that section of Scripture, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, We see the church as it comes together. It's a fledgling church. It's a a new church. And they have come together. And you remember on the day of Pentecost, it began with 3,000. But then it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And some say now the numbers have starting to reach that of 5,000 and larger. So the church is growing very rapidly, which means people who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover and now stayed past that 50 days, they are there and there's the possibility that there are needs that are there. 
Well, as you look at Acts, the fourth chapter, what you find out in beginning in verse 32, it says, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Now listen to what verse 34 says. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds to, of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you have people, and what you have is you have some people, not all of them, but you have some people who own property, who own houses, and it says that they're seeing needs that are around them and that they are selling property and that they are selling homes. And property was no less valuable then than it is today. When we look at property, and if you're in real estate, then you probably know that a, 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 a lot itself may run somewhere around 150 or 200,000 or plus that. I'm just kind of guessing there because I haven't looked at that thing, but I know that property is super uh, valuable. And as Eddie uh, once said to me, he said to me, well, listen, do you know why property is so valuable? And I said, no, he says, because they're not making any more of it. They're not making any more dirt, and so it becomes something that's valuable. Well, it was valuable back then. But it says that they were selling property and that they were selling homes, and they're taking the proceeds and bringing it to the apostles, laying it at their feet, and they're distributing it to anyone who has need. Then it says that Joseph, who is a Levite, he shows up on the scene. And he is called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. That's how the apostles view him as his encouraging individuals. And we learn that he too sells some of his property or sells a plot of land. The question is, why did Barnabas sell his land? And I think the answer to that is that he's seen others giving their lands and he was influenced by their actions of generosity. In other words, he saw givers who were gifted with the gift of giving doing that action, and so he encouraged or he was encouraged to do the exact same thing as well. So you see the church giving of their means so that no one had need within the body of Christ. They were taking care of one another. And that becomes a great example to us of how we are to give as well. In fact, I would submit to you that giving is expected of all of us. It's just not for those who have the gift of giving, but it's for all of us to be givers, and the scriptures bear that out over and over again. First, you might notice Proverbs, the 14th chapter, and verse 21 behind me. Blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Or Proverbs 22 and verse 9. A generous man himself will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Proverbs 19 and verse 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. And he will probably reward him with interest. The idea is that when we help the needy, we're lending to the Lord. We're doing it to the Lord him, himself. Or Proverbs 21 and verse 13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and will not be uh, answered. What does that say to us? I think what it says to us, though, when it comes to this idea of giving, that God is very clear of the fact that all of us are to be givers, that it is not an optional thing. 
that we are to be giving and that we are to look out among us and see that if there's someone in poor or in need that we are to help. Now, obviously, we can't help every poor person. There's a lot of people who are needy, and you can't help every single person, but those that you can, then I think that we are asked to do that very thing. In Africa, I oftentimes have brothers who will send me notes by Facebook, sometimes by a letter, but they let me know that they have needs. It happens on a regular basis for me. I know that I cannot help every single person. In fact, not too long ago, I said to a brother who wrote me and told me some of the difficulties he was going to, I said to him, you know, I can't help every person that is over there. I get these letters all the time, and I can't fix everything that is there. Not only that, it might put you at odds with other brethren if they knew that I gave you a gift and didn't give a gift to someone else. Now, I end up sending the guy some money anyway. And just the other day, I got another note from a brother who was saying, listen, I've started this new congregation out in the bush. I'm in need of a mattress and a bed so that I might be able to stay there for a long time. So he has a need that is there. And so Lori and I are now discussing, okay, do we want to try to meet that need? Because sure enough, as soon as we do that, and another one will pop up. My point is, is that you can't meet all the needs, but when there are needs that you have the ability to help out in, maybe that's something that we need to do because for sure, giving to those who are in need is not an option uh, for us. So the open heart is expected of all believers. Uh, you and I both know, though, that there are a lot of different ways to give, right? Generally, when we think of giving, we always attach a monetary sum to it, don't we? I mean, that's generally what we do. And I think by context here, it probably is, it has or implies that money is being talked about here, that there are those who have been given the ability to gain wealth. Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter in verse 8 says that God is the one who enables us to make wealth, not necessarily our education or our intelligence, not necessarily even our ambition, but God sometimes gives us the gift of making wealth which allows us then to become givers of those things that have been blessed us with. But, but we both know, I think, that, that not all gift-giving has to do with monetary things. Well, how do I know that? Well, take, for instance, the rich man and Lazarus over in Luke, the 16th chapter. You recall the story there. We're introduced to two individuals, Lazarus, whom we learn is a very poor man. He's not a healthy man. He's got sores he is so destitute that dogs are licking his sores so that he might get well. And not only that, but he's hungry, and so he's at the feet or sitting at the table, below the table, of a rich man that we're introduced to. Don't even know his name, but he's a rich man, and he has a sumptuous meal. He's eaten luxuriously, and he's dressed well. And Lazarus is at his table and begging him for the crumbs of his food. But obviously, the rich man doesn't care about Lazarus. We learn that Lazarus dies. And after he dies, it says that the angels are waiting there to escort him to Abraham's bosom, which is paradise, or would be heaven for us. So he goes to a good place. But what about the rich man? Where did he end up? Well, we know that the rich man, he ends up in hell. He ends up in a place of incredible torment, so much so that it says that he longs to have just a single drop of water placed upon his tongue to give him relief, but it wasn't coming his way. The question is, is why did he end up there? And the answer to that question is because he closed his heart. He had no mercy or compassion on a man that was in a destitute situation or circumstance at his feet below his table. 
He could have offered him clothing. He could have offered him food. He could have helped him with his physical health, but he does nothing. He closes his heart to him and has no mercy or compassion. And as a result of it, he ends up in a bad place. In fact, in the parable, God says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. There is a response. There is an account that comes about because the, la the rich man closes his heart up to a person who is in need where he had plenty of wealth to take care of that need. Not only that, you might recall over in Matthew, the 25th chapter, in the parable of the sheep and the goats. You remember in that section of Scripture, there Jesus talks about things that really have little to do with monetary things or uh, money itself. To the sheep, he tells them that they are welcome to heaven. And, and they are wondering exactly why that is, and Jesus tells them, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. The sheep's question to them was, well, when did we see you and do this for you? And Jesus said, to the fact that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, and now you're welcome to heaven. But to the goats, he tells them that they're going to hell. And he tells them why. He says, for I was hungry, and you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked, you did not clothe me, and so on. And because of that, they go into outer darkness. They go into hell it, itself. When you take these two and you put them together, there's some things that they have in common. Each finds someone in need, whether you're talking about Lazarus or whether you're talking about these people who are hungry or thirsty or naked or, or sick or in prison or, or in those kinds of situations, someone was in need. The other thing that you find in common is that someone is either a giver or they were a neglector. That's what they were. And each had little to do with money. You can say, okay, well, listen, you can't feed the hungry unless you have money to buy food. Do you know if you were to come into my garage, and in my garage I have a freezer there, a big freezer there, and that thing is packed with food. My wife has stuff packed in there. I was in there the other day looking for something, and there's so much things I had to dig through to get to the something I was looking for. We have stuff that goes far beyond probably what we, we need. I'm just telling you that that sometimes these things that we're talking about have little to do with money. Even when it comes down to clothing, you ought to see my closet and the clothes that are, are, are there. I could go on and on with this. Each had everything to do, though, with an open heart, with someone opening or closing their heart. The rich man closed his heart rather than opened it. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep opened their hearts, the goat closed their hearts to someone who was in need which should tell us something what it should tell us is that god takes giving really seriously that if you have the gift of a giver then you need to act on your gift you're probably already doing so and having even thought of yourself as being uh, gifted with that that gift okay but you become an inspiration to the rest of us that as we look at your lives, we say to ourselves, you know what? I want to be like that. I want to give. Just as Barnabas looked at those selling property and lands and land, the proceeds of the apostles' feet, he followed suit. He did the same thing. I believe he was influenced and motivated by 
givers. My point is this, is that givers inspire others to give. The person that you see behind me is Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn in her childhood shared a short story in her own words. I thought it was, was a good story. Listen to what she said. Once when I was a teenager, my father and I were standing in line to buy tickets for the circus. Finally, there was only one other family between us and the ticket counter. This family made a big impression on me. There were eight children, all probably under the age of 12. The way they were dressed, I could tell that they didn't have a lot of money, but their clothes were neat and clean. The children were well-behaved, all of them standing in line, two by two, behind their parents, holding hands. They were excitedly jabbering about the clowns and animals and all the acts that they would be seeing that night. By their excitement, you could sense that they had never been to the circus before. It would be a highlight of their lives. The father and mother were at the head of the pack, standing proud as could be. The mother was holding her husband's hand, looking up at him as if to say, you're my knight in shining armor. He was smiling and enjoying seeing his family happy. The ticket lady asked the man how many tickets he wanted. He proudly responded, I'd like to buy eight children's tickets and two adult tickets so that I can take my family to the circus. The ticket lady stated the price. The man's wife let go of his head, hand and dropped her head. The man's lip began to quiver. He then leaned in a little closer and asked, how much did you say? And the ticket lady again stated the price. The man didn't have enough money. How was he supposed to turn and tell his eight kids that he didn't have enough money to take them to the circus? Seeing what was going on, my dad reached into his pocket, pulled out a $20 bill, and dropped it to the ground. Hepburn says, we were not wealthy in any sense of the word. My father bent down, picked up the $20 bill, tapped the man on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, this fell out of your pocket. The man understood what was going on. He wasn't begging for a handout, but certainly appreciated the help in a desperate, heartbreaking, and embarrassing situation. He looked straight into my dad's eyes, took my dad's hand in both his and squeezed tightly onto the $20 bill. And with his lip quivering and a tear streaming down his cheek, he replied, thank you, sir. Thank you. This really means so much to my family. My father and I went back to our car and drove home. The $20 that bill that my dad gave away uh, was the one that was to buy our own tickets. Although they didn't see the circus, she said, although we didn't see the circus, she said that night, we both felt the joy uh, inside us that was greater than seeing the circus uh, could ever provide. She went on to say these words here, and I thought they were so impactful. The giver is bigger than the receiver. If you want to be large, larger than life, learn to give. Love has nothing to do with what you are expecting to get, only with what you are expecting to give, which is everything. The importance of giving, blessing others, can never be overemphasized because there's always joy in giving. Learn to make someone happy by acts of giving. And I thought that was so impactful to me because those who have the gift of giving inspire greater works of service and giving in ourselves. I look at a story like that, and I don't know whether that's true or not. But the idea certainly is true. And being able to give of ourselves to those who are in need, you never know how much of an impact you're going to make on another person's life. So how do you know if you have the gift of, of giving? Well, I don't think it's, 
rocket science. I think it's pretty easy to figure out whether you have the gift or giving or, or not. The first one is this. You recognize that all you have is given to you by God. It's that Deuteronomy 18.8 thing. You recognize that God is the one who enables us to make wealth. God is the one that blesses us, and we recognize that all the possessions that I have uh, really are God's, and we are simply stewards of those things, and that we are to act responsibly with the things that have been putting into our, our trust or under our, our charge. So I think a giver, I think they recognize that, and they recognize all they have is from God. The second way I think that you can decide a giver is, is that they're sensitive and they recognize the needs of others. And they feel driven to help. And they try to find ways to sacrifice. In fact, oftentimes when you talk about being a giver, it involves the idea of sacrifice. You're willing to make sacrifices to help others in their needs. It really is about that simple when it comes to being a, a giver. And like I already mentioned, most givers probably don't even recognize that they are givers or even think of themselves as givers until you hear a sermon like this and you say, you know what, That's, that does describe me. Well, you as a giver, you motivate others to give as, as well. It becomes an incredible thing. I was reading another story of a woman who wrote, I know this one, in fact, to be true. A woman wrote in her childhood that they're out walking one day and, and she found a wallet laying on the ground and she picked the wallet up. Inside the wallet, there was no money that was there, but there was identification. And she said to herself, you know, I know how these things work. If you return this to the owner, oftentimes there is a reward that comes your way. And so she was really excited about the reward. And so she brought it home and showed it to her dad. And her dad, they both get in the car and they drive over to the address uh, that was identified in the wallet. And as they drove into the community itself, they said that they came into a modest military housing unit. And as they walked up to the door, the screen on the door was torn. It was a little bit dilapidated. And the little girl says, as I rang the doorbell, my dad pulled out of his pocket three $20 bills and placed it or tucked it inside the wall and folded it up and gave it to her for her to give to the man that answered the door. She said that day, she said, it turns out my reward was getting to see one of life's true heroes in action. My guess is that this girl would turn out to be a giver because she watched her dad who opened his heart to someone that was there he had it and maybe they they didn't that's what true givers do they inspire us to help others my belief is that god is not so much concerned with how much we or how much you give as in the fact that we do give what we do with our millions if we were if that were to be our lot or what we do with our hundreds or our twenties or our tens or fives or even our our quarter says something about what is inside of us. Those with the gift of giving, they inspire us to open our hearts to those who are in need. God, I believe, wants us to give in, 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 to the needs, and he wants us to do so because he wants us to be like himself. God is the greatest of all givers when you think about it. You see, God opened his heart to each of us. He saw our need. He saw us wallowing in the mower of sin. He saw us imprisoned in sin. He saw us lost in sin. So he gave the greatest gift that he could possibly give. He gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten 
Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice the emphasis of the word, he gave his son. That's the greatest gift of all time. In Luke, the second chapter, when Jesus came into this world, it says that angels or that the shepherds were out in their fields watching after their flocks and that the angels came about them and they said, the angels said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for you and all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The emphasis there is the gift, the greatest gift of all time. And that gift was that of a Savior. So why would we need a Savior? Because we need someone to save us from our sins. Earlier, the announcement was given to Joseph that Mary, his betrothed, would bear a son, that he was to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This baby who would be born in a manger, as precious as that scene would be, would be one who would grow to adulthood. And as a young man, the ancient of days would surrender himself to the authorities. He would humble himself. He would allow himself to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be led out to Calvary, to the hill of a skull, Golgotha. And there they would suspend him between heaven and earth with nails in his hands and his feet. And he would bear the sins of the many. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief and that he would bear the iniquities of us all second corinthians 5 and verse 21 says he made him that's god he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of of god god is the greatest giver of all time and the greatest gift was his son jesus christ when you think about the when you think about the gift of giving God, I think, places people within a congregation where he gives them that gift. Well, they recognize that the things that they have are not their own, and they're sensitive to the others who are in need, and they become motivators or those who influence us and encourages us to be givers as well. God wants us to be givers. We are created after his image to be givers, to look out among us and to see if there's anyone in, in need. Of course, the greatest gift that you have received is Jesus Christ. The question that I would have for you this morning would be this. Have you accepted God's greatest gift? You know, a gift has little value unless someone accepts the gift. I mean, I can hold this precious gift in my hands and I can offer it to you, but unless you take it, then it's of no value to you whatsoever. God from eternity reaches out to us in his son Jesus, offering the greatest gift. And he's asking if we will accept that gift and take it to ourselves. My question for you this morning is, have you done so? And if not, why not? Why not accept his gift or anything else that he promises to give to us? While together we stand and sing and you respond accordingly.